All right, welcome on the Intern Allen Show. Episode, I believe it's 29. I said 27 last week, but I think that was wrong. I think it was 28 last week. Now it's 29. It is Thursday, February, whatever day it is, February 8th. 12.45 p.m. Haven't done shit all day. That's a problem for me. But um, <clears throat> in my apartment in Miami, Florida, as always, um, lots of good stuff this week. More moves from the Twins. More losses from the Timberwolves. Obviously, the Super Bowl is just a few days away, so I'll preview that. Um... And yeah, I'll, I'll break down all the all the games. Another fun little post game. Yeah, let's get started. Um, start with the Wolves, as we always do since the Vikings um, crap their way out of the NFL season. Um, one and two since the last pod for the Wolves. Now a three-way tie for first place in the West at thirty-five and sixteen. Um, so obviously fell back a little bit, um, but nobody is at this point in the season lighting the, lighting the, the world on fire in terms of just going on a tear. Um, we're tied with the Thunder and the Nuggets who are both kind of treading water in a similar fashion to us. Um, <clears throat> obviously, obviously still very good teams. Um, but yeah, last Thursday night, I believe it was. Two point loss to Magic, 108 to 106, or was it 110 to 108? I know one of the scores was 108. Um, it was 108 to 106. I was right the first time, and it was actually Friday night. Um, I've talked about it a lot on this program. Um, for tracking this sort of fourth quarter collapse thing, or at least second half collapse thing. For the better part of a month, probably talked about it every week for the past five weeks or so, um, which I guess that would be a month um, or more. It's become a sort of national topic of conversation when anybody brings up the Wolves. It's like, yeah, they're really good, winning a lot of games. Don't trust them late at all. Um, and if you look past at the last month, they're about a 500 team, probably a little bit better. Um and almost all their losses, at some point, they had a big lead in because they're more talented than almost anybody in the league. Um, and But just can't can go stretches at a time without scoring a bucket um, and sort of get on the other end of some really, really bad, um, like, runs. Wait, let me let me pause. Something just weird happened with my iPhone. I gotta make sure this audio is working properly. All right, good news. Audio is working. Um, I'm so back. Anyway, the Wolves lost the Magic 108-106. Cat, not Cat. Rudy had 22 and 18. Very impressive game from him. Anthony Edwards had 22. But uh, was two of eight from three, which we don't love. And as a, and as a team, we shot about thirty percent from three in this game, which we also don't love. Um, pretty inefficient night from three, and that was at least partly a contributing factor to sort of how that lead disappeared. Uh, lost the fourth quarter by ten points, which is something we do kind of a lot these days. Um, twenty-eight to fourteen, or twenty-eight to eighteen in the fourth. Uh, Paulo Boncaro, Bonk, pause, Paulo Boncaro, um, shout out to the real loons who remember me saying that in the very first episode of all time of this podcast, Paulo Boncaro, sounds like he's horny, um, had 23 and every magic starter had double digit scoring, including like 19 from Franz Wagner or something like that, uh, It's like, I mean, I've, I've talked about it a bunch, as, as I was saying before the auto, before I wanted to check the auto. Um, seems like every night we take a big lead. At one point, 
with a 17-point lead in this game in the second quarter. And, yeah, the second quarter isn't really close to the end of the game at all. But if you have a 17-point lead in the second quarter, you should be taking care of business. Um, if you look at the percentage, like win probability percentage that shows up on the ESPN app, almost every game that the Timberwolves lose, they're at least 80% at one point in that game. Um, so we're just, like, as a team, single-handedly, like, ruining that um, little graphs reputation. Uh, which, you know, we'd prefer it to be on the other side of that. But anyway, um, offensively late, it just hasn't been good for kind of all season, but definitely the better part of the year 2024. Um, I think I remember I, we first brought this up, sort of the turn of the year, the turn of the new year, um, where they lost a couple late games, and then there was that one game against the Lakers where they won, but they still blew a huge lead. Um, it's just been all year. It's been offensively, it's been really, really bad in the fourth quarter. Um, to the point where I think I saw a stat that I think it's all year. I think it's all year. Um, like, so the entire season, the Wolves are ranked 29th in fourth quarter efficiency when there's only 30 teams in the NBA. So 29th is second to worst. The Portland Trailblazers are worst and they are a really, really bad basketball team. Um, so that means the Pistons are better than us. That means the Wizards are better than us in fourth quarter offensive efficiency. That means the Spurs are better. You know, the, some of the really, really dog shit teams in the NBA are, are a better team than us in the fourth quarter, at least on the offensive end. And we are first in the West right now. So it's just a, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, and it's obviously one that we, if you listen to this pod, you've been, you've been knowing about, or if you watch the Timberwolves closely in any, any way at all, you kind of know that it's happening. But um, starting to be a thing that nationally the Wolves sort of are gaining that reputation nationally where people talk about contenders in the West and they leave out the first place wolves because you can't win playoff games when you blow leads like this. Um, and so, I mean, it's also very easy to discount the team that was, you know, in the play in the last few years and all of a sudden it's really good. Um, and look at the nuggets and be like, okay, they're the team. Look at the Clippers, look at the, some of the playoff experience on that roster and say, okay, they're the team that we're worried about. Um, even look at some of the efficiency of the Thunder and say, okay, well, I don't see the problems there offensively late in games that I see with the Wolves. And so it's easy to kind of pick them over us at this point too. Even though we've had the better record for most of the season, we're still tied with them on wins. Um, in this specific game, and this isn't the case for any, you know, all of the fourth quarter losses there's been a lot of them um in this specific game it seemed to be a, that when for the magic they had Boncaro, franz wagner and wendell carter jr on the floor at the same time that we're all of a sudden wait we're not the biggest team anymore because all those guys are six nine or taller um all of a sudden there's just like a lot of size in a way that not a lot of teams can match up with us in terms of size anymore. And um, I think we, that's something that as a team, the Wolves take take for granted and, and consistently feel like we have an advantage in the size um, department where we got Cat, we got Rudy, and that's kind of enough. The Twin Towers, two seven-footers, one dominates the paint, one can score from anywhere. And we're just like, all right, we're good. Um. Boncaro has been really, really good all year. It was really good in the paint in this game. Wendell Carter Jr. is kind of like a mini Rudy in terms of like the type of game he plays, dunks and layups, putbacks, and then sort of a lead on the defensive end. And then Franz Wagner is a big that you can play anywhere on the court, and that and it seemed to give us a little bit of problems, um, both offensively and defensively in this in this game. Is that the reason we blew the fourth quarter lead? I'm not sure it is, but that's sort of the way it manifested at least. Um, in terms of all those guys having really good games against us in this one. Um, 
a couple nights later, I believe this was Sunday night, uh, a comfortable win against the Rockets, 111-90. to The Rockets are not a good basketball team. Um, they're below 500. They're young. Um, and then the veteran pieces that they add in the offseason are getting paid a lot of money to be very average <clears throat> in Fred Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks. Um, Anthony Edwards had 32. Um, Rudy and Cat both had double doubles. Rudy had 17 and 13. Cat had 14 and 10. Um, and this is an example of what I was just talking about on the other side. The only big that they're consistently playing, or the only big that is getting starting and closing type minutes, is Alperin Shangun for um, the Rockets. You can call Jabari Smith a big, but he's really just, I mean, he's a bit, he plays power forward technically, and he is 6'9 at least, but like, he's essentially a shooter, um, or just like a really big wing. Like in Auburn, he was a wing. Like, he was maybe the biggest size wise, tallest player on that team, but he's essentially like, a wing that tries really hard to be Kevin Durant and isn't really good at that. And then Fred Van Vliet is tiny. Dylan Brooks is just bad and not that big. And um, Jalen Green is a wing. So, I mean, Shangun isn't, isn't even really a center um, in terms of defensively. But we kind of killed them down low uh, in terms of Ant driving to the hoop, Rudy scoring, and Cat scoring, um, and dominating on the board. So... Not a lot of concerns from this game, obviously. Um, it was a blowout win and one that there was no drama in. So even some of their blowouts this year, it's been like, why are they losing in the second quarter and then they take care of business? Um, There's a little bit of a moment in the second quarter where the Rockets had to run, but really there was never really any kind of concern um, for this game. Um But, yeah, that brings us to the Bulls game, Tuesday night, 129 to 123, a loss in overtime. Um, we'll just get out real quickly out of the way the numbers. Edwards had 38 and 12 boards from the shooting guard position. Cat had 33 of his own in points. Um, Kobe White and DeMar DeRozan each had 33. Kobe White hung 33 on this. That's kind of tough. He's not, like, any kind of excellent player. He's, like, decent, I guess. But he's had a pretty good career. But, like, you're not going into a game scared of Kobe White. DeRozan, maybe. But not really Kobe White. Um, at one point late the second quarter, I believe it was, we had a 23-point lead. Had a 22-point lead at halftime. And went down in the fourth and then had to fight back to even force overtime. So in the fourth quarter, we, we had a 22-point lead and ended up tying the game. So that means in the second half, we lost the second half 22 by 22 points. None of what I just said makes sense. We got outscored in the, tw- in the second half by 22 points and outscored by nine in the fourth quarter. Um, in this case, the real problem was the third quarter um so we're blowing leads every which way um the team is very quick to give up trying if that option is even like remotely available to them and like i understand that it's not like great analysis to be like the team stops trying very hard but in some cases it really seems like this team stops trying very hard in this case, we go up 22 against a team that isn't very good. Um, and on both ends of the ball, the intensity is just like completely flops from there for the entire second half. Um, like I said, we got Jaden McDaniels on the team. We got Anthony Edwards is a pretty good defender for as much as he scores. We got other perimeter defenders that are like pretty good. Kill Alexander Walker being one example. Like, and we're letting Kobe White hang 33 on us. In this case, and, and, and 
a lot of the times this year, the problems with the late collapses is just the team can't score. I always talk um, with, like, my March Madness bracket and, like, which college basketball teams I can trust or not. I always say this in college basketball. If there's a team that can go, like, five minutes without scoring, I don't trust them because there's going to be some point in the tournament where that happens. As good as they are, they might be a really good team, but some teams, like Virginia is an example where this happens a lot, where they just can't score for, like, five minutes. Um and that's the type of thing that happened when they lost to that 16 seed. That's been the Wolves for much of the season. It doesn't really happen in the NBA as much as it happens in college. But there's some times where this team just can't score late. And that, you know, goes to the rank 29th in offensive efficiency in the fourth quarter thing. That wasn't even really the problem against the Bulls. We just stopped defending. And that, I mean, that is... This team's reputation this entire year, when we were winning, you know, seemingly like five out of six to begin the year, just like every every ten games we're winning eight of them, like that type of stuff, to start the season the first month or two, it was because we were the best defensive team in the league and historically in some ways good good defensively. Um in this, in this game, we allowed 36 points in the third quarter and 32 in the fourth quarter after allowing 22 and 25 in the first two quarters, respectively. So, like, just completely falling apart on the defensive end, which is, like, a whole new way. Like I said, this team is going to find a way to blow a lead any which way. Um, so a whole new way that really we haven't seen this year defensively um, to blow a lead. And that's what happened to the Bulls. Or against the Bulls. Um, we even went down by as many as five or six points at some point in the fourth. Um, or maybe it was only up to four, something like that. I don't remember exactly. Um, but Cat had a hit a big three with about 50 seconds left. And then we had another chance to hit a big three to win. He missed that one. But um, to even go – to have a 20-point lead, 22-point lead at the half, and then even go down to the fourth quarter where you have to claw back and even force overtime, it's just not what happens for, for teams that make deep playoff runs. And so there's something to be said about – the state of the NBA right now, and maybe especially this year, where teams are scoring more points than seemingly ever, and, you know, a 17-point lead, a 20-point lead isn't what it was even 10 years ago in terms of how quickly that lead can evaporate just because teams get really hot and offenses are really humming, and um, the refereeing is really benefiting the offensive player. Um so there's something to be said for the fact that leads aren't as safe as they used to be. Games are decided by wider and wider margins, which means that um, even big leads can sort of <laughs> be brought back um, because of just how much scoring is happening. Um, so I don't want to sit here and say, like, the Wolves are the only team in the league that is blowing leads or... Everybody else in the league, all the other contenders in the league are really rock solid and we're the only ones that have this problem. Like, that's not true. There's, like, blown leads all over the place in the NBA this year. That being said, we have the most of them this calendar year, I'm pretty sure. Um, or I think I saw a stat since, like, the middle of January. We have the most blown double-digit deficits in the fourth quarter, um, which we didn't even have in this last game. So that this game, which maybe is one of the worst collapses we've had this year, other than the one against the Hornets with the cat thing. Um, wouldn't even count for that stat. And um, so it's one thing to be like, okay, it's it's just kind of how the league is right now. This is what's happening. And it's another thing to realize that the Wolves are the foremost example, the one that is blowing the most leads, that have this little issue the worst than any other team in the league. And with that all, all that being said, we're 36 and 15 and tied for first place in the in the West. And so 
this feels a lot like, I mean, it's a very Minnesota sports thing to do. Um, feels a lot like what happened to the Twins this year, where it's like, this, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. We're upset about this, we're upset about this. And then we still end up winning the division by eight games or something like that. And yes, bad division, whatever. Um, in this case, this team has a very real problem in the fourth quarter. And they are, especially now that we're blowing games defensively instead of offensively, it seems like we don't really know what's going on. We're a little bit lost. Um, and that is, so that that's a very real problem. It exists. And yet we're still one of the best teams in the NBA. So what do we make of that? I'm not sure. I just think um, as good as our record in it is and as good as this regular season has gone for us overall and as good of a playoff position we might end up getting to, I think we're a year or two away in terms of maturity to make a big run. And I think that's sort of, like, realistically, at this point, we're going to make the playoffs. We're going to be a top four seed. We might even be a top two seed. We might even be the top seed in the playoffs. But none of that matters if we can't close out games in the playoffs. And that seems to be, like, the big thing. So losing these regular season games, in one sense, doesn't matter at all. But the lessons that we take from this team from seeing all these collapses is what you have to be most concerned about. And the front office seems concerned about it too. And that's why we made a trade just a few days ago, I believe Um, got Monte Morris from the Pistons for Troy Brown jr. Shake Milton and a 20, 2030 second round pick. Um, at first glance, I like the trade. Um, Shake Milton is not a good NBA player, in my opinion. Um, I don't really know how he would hold any trade value. And I'll say the exact same thing about a 2030 second round pick. Second round picks are almost useless. Sure, you can draft Nikola Jokic, but how many Rakeem Christmases or Luka Garza's or... Um, Andres Biedrins were drafted with second round picks. Like they're they're mostly irrelevant. Realistically, in the NBA draft, outside the top five, you're not expecting a, a perennial starter. Outside of the top fifteen, you're lucky to ever be in the rotation in any kind of meaningful way. And that's just how it is. Um, it's a very small league. So a second round pick, um, like it's almost worthless. Anyway, um, so now let's look at the player we actually got. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm burping up a storm. Monte Morris is, at this point, I guess you could consider him a veteran. He's been around for a while. I still remember him at Iowa State, so it's like weird to call him a veteran. But um, I should probably look up how many years he's been in the league. He is a sort of career backup point guard. Um, or backup ball handler. I guess you can maybe call him a shooting guard, but probably like not. He's 28 years old. He is. Um, how many years has he been in the league? I guess probably six. Then came in the league in 2017 with the Nuggets, so that's about seven years. Yeah. Um played for the Nuggets for a while was uh had like 10 and 5 off the bench for the Wizards last year which like coming off the bench for the Wizards you're not exactly an all NBA type player but um I remember really liking him on those Nuggets teams as sort of a secondary slash third point guard um and I think he, that's the role he's been playing since then too it's exactly kind of what I thought this team needed i said i think i mentioned that 
probably a month and a half ago at this point that I was like, don't like Shake Milton. Keel Alexander Walker isn't exactly what we need. Um, he's seems to be more turning into a three and D type of guy. Um, so I think Monte Morris fills that hole pretty well. And we basically gave him up for nothing. A lot of people liked the idea of Troy Brown jr. Um, like the potential there wanted to see him in the lineup. I don't think that he was going to move the needle for this team this year in any kind of way. I think Monte Morris does a little bit. Um, if he can provide stabilizing, you know, 20 to 22 stabilizing minutes a game where it's a little bit of offense off the bench, maybe it stems the tide of some of these negative runs against us. Um, maybe we can rest Mike Conley a little bit more so he can be a little bit more involved as a stabilizing presence in the fourth quarter when things are going wrong. Like, that all helps. Um With that being said, Monte Morris also has 48 games of playoff experience um, with the Nuggets. Wasn't on their championship team, but um, 48 games of playoff experience is more than maybe anybody on the team has currently. That's probably not correct with Rudy Gobert. Um, let me look that up right now. But it is a significant amount of playoff experience, and it would be doing exactly what he's doing now, playing back a point guard. So it's not like we're expecting him to all of a sudden start, and then his playoff experience is very different than what he'd be doing for us. It'd be the exact same thing. Um, playoff record. Rigo Bear has a 22-32 and 32 record in the playoffs in his career. That's not very good. Um but that adds up to more than 48. So Rudy Gobert is the most playoff games in this team. I think Monte Morris automatically becomes second on that list. Um, kind of unfortunate. But <clears throat> I like the trade at first blush. I feel like we gave up essentially nothing to get somebody who could help a little bit. And, you know, is it going to change the course of this team drastically? Probably not. But... Um, it's good to have another guy you can trust when things are kind of going sideways in the way that they have a lot for this team. Um, I think that's just about covered the Wolves for this week. I think they play the Bucks tonight. Bucks, Clippers, and then two games against the Blazers this week. Um, it'd be great to win one of those games against those really good teams, especially the Clippers who are 34 and 16. We're currently 35 and 16. They're essentially just as good as us. And a lot of people are starting to pick the Clippers as a, as a favorite in the West. Um, Harden's playing well. Kawhi's been great. Paul George is good as always. Um, and Russell Westbrook is on the bench finally. So, like, all those guys seem to actually kind of be working together, which... I don't think anybody necessarily expected to happen. Um, and we'll see if it actually continues to be that way until the playoffs. But right now they're playing really good basketball. So to win a game against them would be huge to sort of feel like this team is back on track. Um, the Bucks as well, you could say the exact same thing. And honestly, we probably will win one of these games because we <laughs> will try hard. We won't give up just because we're playing the Bulls or something. Yeah. Um, and then should beat the Blazers the next two games. But we'll see. Um, let's transition quickly to the Twins. Two moves, technically three moves, actually. Um, we added a guy off waivers that I'd never heard of this morning or last night or yesterday or something. But I'm not going to talk about him because he's not really relevant. Two major moves, only really one major move, honestly. Signing Carlos Santana for $5 million, I think it's five and a quarter, something like that. Um, I mentioned last week on the pod that the team wanting to save money as much as it is, that once we saved like $9 million or even like $8 million, something like that, from um, – Carlos, not Carlos Santana, that's the guy we just got, from Polanco, that we'd kind of use that money pretty quickly. Um, 
and that's that's exactly what happened. We used it up in this entire week. Like we, in one week, we used up all the money. Um, so I mentioned last week that we tried to get a right-handed bat for five to six million. That's exactly what we did. We got a well switch hitting bat, um, I guess for for five million, five and a quarter million. Um, Carlos Santana will be 38 years old for much of the season that he turns 38 on April 9th, which is also my mom's birthday. Um, shout out Loon Beth. Um, so he's pretty old, um, but he still hit pretty well last year. Uh, 240 something average, but mid mid twenties pumps, 86 RBI or something like that. Um, so still a good bat in the lineup. Um, would have been near our team leaders in in pumps, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, and the big thing is that he hits. He's a switch hitter, which provides a lot of flexibility for um, the lineup and Rocco building the lineup and all that stuff. And something that we we lost with Polanco, um, but we just kind of get it right back with a new switch hitter. Um, and the big thing is that he hits from the right side better than he hits from the left side, which means he hits left-handed pitching better than right-handed pitching. And we need um, somebody in the lineup that hits left-handed pitching well, especially when Buxton went down. He's a good right-handed pit hitter. Um, when he went down and was no longer effective and all the weird stuff that was happening with him last year, we really had no right-handed hitters. We were playing Kyle Farmer in like a platoon situation against lefties and we just weren't really good against left-handed pitching at all. Um, so this move hopefully addresses that. Um, his average creeps up to around 260 against lefties. Um, power numbers increase as well, uh, which makes sense. Um, probably play a lot of DH and provides a lot of flexibility in DH where you can play them every day. Um, there if you want against righties and lefties. Um, if Kirloff gets hurt, which he surely will because he's always hurt, then Carlos Santana is still, even at 38, a pretty good defensive first baseman. Um, and he might just play there sometimes anyways. Kirloff needs a day off and have him play DH, something like that. Um, Jose Miranda will be in that first base DH mix as well because um, he you know, he has a right-handed bat, but he just was not very effective really at any point last year, um, dealt with some injuries himself. But um, overall, I like the signing. I just don't see a lot of downside. You know, if he isn't good or he's old or he's hurt, then, which, you know, all that stuff is possible, then it's, you know, $5 million and on a one-year deal, and it's like, all right, we'll roll with exactly what we had last year. Um, people were... You know, I mentioned Jorge Soler's name on the podcast last week. Uh, there's a lot of Twins fans who were really into that as he's one of sort of the most relevant uh, right-handed bats left on the free agency market. But, you know, other than Carlos Correa, the Twins have never really gotten the one, the, the top guy on the market. Um, and even though I don't think it was necessarily something that people, a lot of people expected, I think Carlos Santana makes a lot of sense. Um as in a down year of spending, spending a little bit of money on a one-year deal and then going out and maybe getting a bigger fish once we figure out the TV deals in the future makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we also got Jay Jackson. He's a reliever from the Blue Jays. I'd literally never heard of him in my entire life. He's a free agent signing. Um, got like a million and change, maybe a couple million. I don't actually remember, um, but very cheap. Pitched to a 2.12 ERA in 25 games last year, so very good um, ERA numbers at least. I know I know actually nothing about him. I had never heard the name until we, we picked him up, but um, should figure into like the fourth, fifth spot, maybe sixth spot in the bullpen in terms of leverage. He's not going to be challenging Duran um, or Jax or. Um, Brock Stewart in terms of like the high leverage stuff. Is he a more reliable option than like Jorge Alcala, who's always hurt and always kind of shitty? Then yeah, like I think he is. He's probably very similar to the uh, Justin Topa that we got last week. Um, just sort of a depth piece in in the bullpen, and I think 
that's a place where having depth is very important. That was something we realized the first half of last year is that this team sucks in the bullpen. There's about two guys you can trust. If there's even four or five guys that we can trust this year, that's significant, um, significantly better than it was to start the year last year. And, you know, Jay Jackson might not be one of those guys we can trust, but we have to keep getting guys in the, in the bullpen to kind of figure out who those guys are. So I like the move. Um, then we added somebody off waivers this week, also a reliever. I don't remember his name. Um, and with that guy's money, we've kind of used up all the $8 million that we had free. So there we go. We've spent the money that we – it's so very clear, by the way, that the Twins are just like – like they mentioned the, 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 the payroll thing at the beginning of the year and attached it to TV deals and whatever. But the TV deals figured out – even if it's not a great option because you still have to do Bally again. But, like, TV deal's been figured out. It's kind of exactly the same as it has been, to my understanding. And we're still only spending money that we save from trades. So, like, we're not spending new money. And I guess we know that the thing, the payroll's going to be cheaper and, like, whatever. But we're penny-pinching like crazy where... We make a trade that clears up eight or so million, and then we spend that eight or so million, and then we stop. It's very, like, all right, I guess. But um, it's very, like, I don't know what the word I'm saying, like frugal and stingy. Um, and I guess they told us that was going to happen. But, you know, we'll see if there's more to come. Hopefully there would be is still more to come. Um, all right, I'm going to take a quick water break, and then we're going to break down the Super Bowl, tell you everything you need to know. Um. Yeah. <coughs> All right. Um The Chiefs are playing the 49ers in case you uh weren't aware. They're playing in Las Vegas. This coming Sunday, uh, 6.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, 8.30 Las Vegas time. Wait, is that how that works? No, we're ahead. 6.30 Eastern, 5.30 Central, 4.30 Las Vegas time. 3.30 Pacific. Overall thoughts, and I'll do some overall thoughts, then I'll do the, if this happens, the Niners win, if this happens, the Chiefs win, and then I'll say what I actually think is going to happen. That's um, what you can expect over the next 10, 15 minutes here. It's probably going to be more than that. Um, Overall thoughts, this is a situation where it's the more complete team versus the best player in the league. Um, I think overall, guy for guy, unit for unit, the Niners are the team that you would pick the most guys from. So if, you know, we're comparing the wide receiver core, we love Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk more than Rasheed Rice and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Like, you know, tight end, we're pretty much straight up probably edge to the Chiefs. Offensive line, we like Trent Williams. Um, you know, Creed Humphrey's good for the, for the Chiefs. Offensive line may be pretty even, but probably a bit of an edge to the 49ers. Um, running back, we're probably an edge to the 49ers. Quarterback, obviously, edge to the Chiefs. Um, I think defensively, 49ers have guys at every spot in a way that the Chiefs don't quite. Um, and I think there's a slight edge there. So I think the big difference is on the offensive end. The team is just more of a complete, um, cohesive, effective unit than we've seen the Chiefs be this year. And that all may not matter. Because Patrick Mahomes is the best player in the National Football League. And he's going to do his thing to an extent. And that might be enough kind of single-handedly to get the Chiefs a Super Bowl. Um, that's the first kind of, you know, sometimes you get games where it's really good defense versus really good offense. This one, really good team versus pretty good team with the best player. 
Um, I think it should be low scoring. I like the under in this game. Again, I don't give out betting advice because I don't actually bet, but I believe the number is like 47.5 points. I like the under. I think this game follows a lot the script of the Ravens-Chiefs game where the Chiefs' defense is good enough to hold and sort of stymie what has been a pretty good offense. Um, And then Patrick Mahomes is going to try to bring his struggling pass catcher core to a place where they can score a decent point. Either way, I don't think either team is, you know, blowing the doors off the other defense. Um, And I think this is a a game where the defenses are the better units, maybe on both sides. Um, And I like that sort of to – I like – I like the idea, or I think that it's going to happen, that um, that leads to a very low-scoring game. Obviously, if there's some kind of pick six or return, then all that is in doubt. But I like the under anyway. Um, I also think this is going to be a very, very close game. Obviously, the line's at one and a half, and it's moved a little bit since it started. Um, so a lot of people agree with me on that. Um, or they like the Chiefs, I guess. But I think... Whatever edges that one team seems to have, you can go against the other. You can go look at the other team and say, okay, but they have the, like the 49ers, like I just said, you know, sort of well-oiled offensive machine. Everything's going well, but the other team has Patrick Mahomes. Or, but the 49ers have Brock Purdy. We don't know what we're going to get in terms of is he going to be second half last week Brock Purdy or he's going to be um, Barely beating the Packers, Brock Purdy. Is he, or he's going to be first back, first half of the Lions game, Brock Purdy. Um, and I think that makes a big difference as well. Um, as I'll mention a little bit more in a bit. I think it's a very close game. I don't think this is a game where... I mean, it's the Super Bowl, so obviously like it's going to be close. I don't think this is a game where one team is clearly like the team to beat. Like, this is no... Pats Giants Super Bowl where the Pats are the team to beat even though they didn't win either of those games but um, I think both teams are equally flawed in some ways and um, it should be close for that reason I think this game like I might have even though the Ravens lost the Chiefs I think I would like the Ravens almost more in this game than I like the it was Ravens 49ers because they're the same kind of thing and the Ravens are just a better version of it. I think the Patrick Mahomes thing scares me um, away from thinking that the Niners are significantly better. Um, So those are my general takeaways. All of that means it should be very fun. I think every drive is going to matter in this game. Um, I think it should go down to late game sort of heroics or failures on one side or the other. Hopefully not a late-game penalty. That seems to be a very strong theme, um, both in Super Bowls or high-level playoff games in the past and this season in the NFL. It's just a lot of officiating issues. Um, So hopefully not that, but I do think that's very possible with how close this game is going to be. All right. The 49ers win if. I'll give you three things. The 49ers win if Brock Purdy plays mistake-free. In terms of a high-octane level, how efficiently they move the ball, what you're expecting this team to do scoring the ball. Right now, I think the Niners' offense is better than the Chiefs. And so if we say that the defenses are pretty both very good, pretty close to even, I think that the Niners' offense, efficiency-wise, is a better offense than the Chiefs. And I don't think many people would argue with me on that. But... If Brock Purdy makes mistakes, if Brock Purdy blinks a little bit, last pick in the draft, um, first time in the playoffs in any kind of meaningful way, I guess he, you know, got hurt in the, so he had one playoff game last year and then got hurt. But first time on this kind of stage, obviously, first time in the Super Bowl compared to Mahomes' four now. Um, I think Brock Purdy blinks, makes a mistake, throws a bad pick push the ball on the ground a little in any kind of way. I think if that type of thing happens, then the 49ers are in a little bit of trouble. But if that doesn't happen, 
and Brock Purdy plays mistake-free and just allows the offense to be the more efficient offense, which it ought to be, then I think the 49ers will win this game. The other thing that needs to happen for the 49ers to win the game is they need to stop the run. What happened against the Lions, we talked about it for a couple weeks now, that they are not as good against the run as we thought they were. If that happens against Isaiah Pacheco and the Chiefs, um, I think that's a concern for, for the Niners. If that does not happen and you stop the run, make Patrick Mahomes beat you as good as he is, I think that that puts the Niners in a lot better spot. If the Niners are getting consistently ran on the way they were in the first half of the Lions game, then I don't think there's a lot you can do <laughs> to it. I mean, you give the kind of pockets that Patrick Mahomes are, is going to be getting and the kind of separation that even his, you know, less than perfect wide receivers are going to be getting if you're running the ball effectively. I don't think you can beat Patrick Mahomes in that scenario. Because you look at the Ravens, I mean, they basically bottled up Patrick Mahomes um, for the most part. And uh, we talked about why he's still great anyway last week. But they stopped the run. And that was a big part of, you know, Pacheco had a touchdown, but he didn't have a lot of yards, wasn't very efficient. I think that's a big part of how they were able to have that success. If the Niners are able to do that too, I think it gives them a huge advantage. Um, I wrote here in the 49ers win if. I wrote the turnover battle would be huge. If they can win the turnover battle, that would be huge. As I said, I think they're more, this is kind of a similar to the Brock Purdy thing. I think they're a better offense and a more efficient team. But... The way I see it right now, they're more likely to lose the turnover battle and have to, you know, obviously we always talk about, especially in the playoffs, that turnover battle is a huge thing. That if you lose the turnover battle, you're more likely to lose the game and there's all sorts of stats to back that up. I think this is a, a, looking into this game from, you know, before the game happens, if I had to guess, I think that the Chiefs have a significant advantage in the turnover battle or the odds of them winning the turnover battle is significant and i think that the niners offense offensive efficiency is enough to kind of beat them anyway potentially or to make it a close game anyway i think if somehow the niners can turn over patrick mahomes or maybe a wide receiver fumbles or pacheco fumbles or something if they can end up if the niners can end up actually winning the turnover battle I don't think that there's a lot of firepower on the Chiefs to combat that. And so I think that that turnover battle is always important. But if the Niners can actually turn what I see as a disadvantage right now into an advantage in the actual game, I think that is maybe the biggest thing they can do to actually win this game. Because they have the advantage elsewhere, I think. Moving on to the Chiefs. The Chiefs win if... A little bit of magic from Patrick Mahomes. He's the best player. He's the best player in the NFL. He's the best player in this game. He's the best player in these playoffs. And he's played like it. But he's played a very efficient, control the ball, rely on the defense type of game. If he can get a little bit of that high octane back, if he can make some plays, maybe a third and 15 when you don't think it's going to happen, maybe a fourth and two end up scoring a touchdown somehow, stuff like that. Maybe it's scrambling to get first downs and extend drives. If stuff like that can happen for Patrick Mahomes, I think that goes a long way to make up the difference between the Chiefs and the Niners um, offensively, which, I, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but like sort of, beating around the bush a little bit. I think that defensively, the both teams are very similar. They're both very good defensively. I think overall the Niners' offense is better. I think the Chiefs' offense is slightly worse, but they have Patrick Mahomes. So I think that's like kind of the crux of a lot of these things is if that Patrick Mahomes can be so good that he overcomes the sort of total yards shortcoming or the move the ball shortcoming that I see with this offense compared to the Niners offense, then I think that can go a long way for them winning because they have the advantage 
in likely the advantage in the turnover battle and controlling the game otherwise. Um, the second one is if the Chiefs can make big plays from the secondary. The secondary can be very involved the way they were um, against the Ravens. I think that's another huge advantage as well. And that goes towards the Brock Purdy mistakes scenario. Um, Legereus Sneed has been great all year and all in all playoffs. Trey McDuffie has been good as well. Um, if guys like that can kind of take over the game a little bit on, on defense, I think um, we know the Niners are going to run the ball, and we know they're going to be pretty efficient doing it. Uh, not Patrick Collins. Christian McCaffrey is a very good player. He's probably the second best player in this game. Um, but if you can neutralize Debo Samuel a little bit, if you can maybe get a turnover on a, on a on a Brock Purdy mistake, if you can maybe make just a crazy play on a ball that isn't even a mistake, um, then I think that goes a long way towards getting this Chiefs team a dub. The last thing I have for the Chiefs is if Rasheed Rice or Travis Kelsey has a big game. Um, the entire office doesn't have to be good if Travis Kelsey plays like the best tight end in NFL history, which I'm not saying he is, he may or may not be, but there's 10 minute times in his career where Travis Kelsey is completely unstoppable. Um, there's been a lot of times this year where they just kind of send a lot of guys at him because there's no good receivers and he's even been dropping passes when even when he's open, he just hasn't been as good. He's been good in the last two weeks, um, but he just hasn't been as good as he has been. If he's like Super Bowl MVP type of game, 150 yards, two touchdowns, if that happens, they're winning this game. Because um, <clears throat> that means that the offense will have been a lot more efficient than they have been for most of this year. And then all the concerns about the Chiefs kind of go away. Um, same thing can be said for Rasheed Rice. If, if, if he has, if he has a game to the type of game that he's been having, maybe even a little bit better, then I think they win this game as well. Rasheed Rice has been sneakily, actually pretty good for most of the second half of the season, um, and definitely in these playoffs. He is now. I mean, I don't know if you talk about him at the same level as Zay Flowers, but last week watching the game didn't seem to be a lot worse than Zay Flowers, and we talked all year about how good Zay Flowers was. So he's like that type of rookie wide receiver now. Took him a while to get there, but it seems like that now. If he can be really good in this game, and that seems to kind of overcome the wide receiver problem that we perceive that the Chiefs have, then I think they win the game because there is less risk everywhere else. Okay, there's a lot of words. What actually happens? Vegas tells you that the Chiefs are going to lose, but the betting public tells you that they're going to win. Um, line started at two and a half. It's now one and a half, something like that. Um, and I think like way more money is on the Chiefs than on the Niners. Because nobody wants to bet against Patrick Mahomes because you feel stupid, whatever. I... Again, I don't bet, so, like, whatever. But I would take the Chiefs outright, and I would take the under, as I mentioned. I just think that the things that need to go right for the Chiefs are more likely to happen than the things that need to go right for the Niners. A mistake-free game from Brock Purdy against this Chiefs defense with the guys in the secondary that I mentioned, I just I think that's less likely to happen than the guys on the Chiefs that have been playmakers their entire life making big plays. You know, if Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey can get the big plays that they've had a lot of times this year, or if Mahomes can kind of turn back the clock to the way he won the game, the way he won the Super Bowl a couple years ago with big plays down the field, can just do a little bit of that. Um, I think that's more likely to happen than Brock Prairie playing a perfectly efficient game. And um, and I don't think there's a lot of difference defensively. I think they're both very good defenses. 
I think. I think if you look at the the Super Bowl that the Chiefs lost, right? There was a clear there was a clear disadvantage up front when the Chiefs were on offense. Excuse me. Um their offensive line against that Bucks defensive front was a clear disadvantage for the Chiefs. I don't think anywhere even though the offense is not as good as it has been all year or not as good as it has been in the past, sorry, and has been sort of questionable all year. I don't think there's any sort of clear mismatch in this game that goes against the Chiefs in that way. And I think that the clear mismatch is Patrick Mahomes versus sort of normal NFL players. Um, you could say that the Chiefs wide receivers against the Ravens second, or Ravens, against the Niners secondary is a clear mismatch, but the Niners secondary hasn't been that good um, for a lot of this year. And I just like Patrick Mahomes to be in control of the game, and that's kind of it. So I don't know if I'm dumb going with the sort of consensus public money, but that's just, you know, making a prediction is just deciding what you think is most likely to happen. I just think that that is... Them doing something special is more likely than Brock Purdy not fucking up in my mind. And um, if I die on the Brock Purdy isn't that good hill because of that pick, then that that's what's going to happen. I think that's just still what I believe. Um, that's that settled. Um, I should have done Super Bowl props, like picked a couple, but... Uh, did not like put any research into that. Now I realize that would have been kind of fire. Um, I'm gonna go red Gatorade. That's probably like, let me let me look at some prop odds. Red Gatorade is probably the massive favorite because both teams are red, huh? Um, Super Bowl Gatorade. What is the other like big one? The um, the other big one is like over under on the national anthem time. So like that, whether well, there's going to be a two-point conversion. All right, what do we got? Red is plus 400. Are we kidding? Maybe it's just like nobody likes red Gatorade. Nobody likes that flavor. Color Gatorade. Uh, so purple is plus 275. Orange is plus 325. Blue is plus 375. Yellow slash green is plus 375. That's just lemon lime flavor, I guess. Um, red and pink is plus 400. Clear slash water is plus 1100. Why wouldn't it be red? Is it usually purple? Why is purple such a favorite? Somebody who bets props, tell me. Um, since 2011, orange has been dumped the most. Red Gatorade has never won since 2001. Why is purple up there? Why do people why are people thinking purple? Maybe there's some insider info. I don't know. Um, oh, it looks like the Chiefs did purple last time. Maybe that's a thing. Um, this is really good podcasting, by the way. Uh, over under on national anthem. So I'm I'm still picking I'm picking red because both teams are red. Come on now. I think you have the red, you have a shot on both teams. Over, under, National Anthem. These are the two props I'm picking. Um, who's singing it? Reba? It's probably going to take a while, I feel like. Um, we give, so... Over under is at 90.5 seconds. Probably depends on where you look. But um, opened at 83 and a half. So people are hammering the over. But not right now. Over, you're getting some plus 102. Under is minus 128. So why wouldn't you just take the over? 90 seconds. I don't know if that's a long time or not. People usually go over. Or no, people usually go under. Oh, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, just, I'm going to plant my flag on um, just going over. There's better value on the over. 
those are my two prop bets. Um, I don't know what the other good props are. Uh, Super Bowl commercials, I'm sure. Whatever. Um, that's it. That's the uh, national <laughs> national anthem and Gatorade props. Um, and that's my Super Bowl preview. Uh, post game time. Bit of a fun post game this week. Um, you may have seen on the Loon Twitter that I was in the the PNC Club, the the behind home plate club, with the cushy seats um, at Marlins Park or Lone Depot Park. Um, during the week, that was Tuesday morning. Uh, had a beer, no big deal, boozer. Um, we're like, how did how did I get there? Uh, so I've been cheating on the Loon a little bit. Been doing content or starting to do content, not, well, I'll just explain, for a different website. It's called the Stadium Insiders. It doesn't exist yet. Um, but I saw this thing on LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn god now. Um, that they're looking for people in, you know, big cities in the country with professional sports teams to, like, be stadium experts and, like, write, essentially, like, stadium travel guides for each stadium um, in the major four sports in uh, the U.S. And so I, I'm, I'm the Lone Depot Park guy, which is used to be called Marlins Park. Now it's Lone Depot Park, um, where the Marlins play, uh, close to downtown Miami. So I'm getting I, – I was in the game Tuesday for free. Got into like all the clubs for free because my boss bought the tickets because uh, I need to review them, you know. Um, and so that's why I was there reviewing the, the behind home plate club, which, you know, you have behind home plate like right there views and cushy seats, free unlimited food and drink. Liquor is not free, but beers are free. Um you can get wine too if you're weird. Um, free food as well. It was morning, so they had breakfast out, so that was kind of fire. Um, but yeah, it was kind of sick. Uh, like I said, cheating on the loon, so sorry about that. I said that when I quit music that I was going to build up the loon a little bit. Low-key, a lot of time being spent um, traveling to different places in Miami to like review them. Because part of this thing is like, all right, you re- review the stadium went to a couple games for free this week. Um, and, but then it's also like, uh, you need to like go to certain neighborhoods to see if it's good to stay in a hotel there. And like, I don't know Fort Lauderdale very well. So I had to go to Fort Lauderdale, see if it's realistic to, you know, have a hotel there or like Aventura, all these other places. Anyway, been doing that. It's been very busy. Um, am getting paid for it. So, Nobody freak out about my bank account, but, um, yeah, so there's a little bit of a, like a Caribbean series tournament happening in, uh, Monterey's Park, Lone Depot Park this week. So, or this week and last week. So got a chance to go into the game early. He's going to be like, oh, you have to wait till opening day to go in, but got to go in early, able to get super cheap, um, super cheap like pnc club the behind home plate suite thing um super cheap tickets for that got in there review that always fun to see a game that way i used to watch games like that from college at target field because my rich friend could hook us up but um good to be back in the cushy seats behind home plate uh might try to take loon girlfriend there in in the wednesday actual season starts because I just have a feeling that nobody goes to Marlins games and that they might, like, after first pitch type of thing, they might, like, those tickets might become super cheap. Like, they're usually $250 tickets, but if they become super cheap and they're, like, 60 bucks after first pitch, then, you ha- like, you might as well. I buy them both. It's 120 Like, that's a re- regular date night. Also, if you're buying $15 tickets and getting a beer or two and a meal you're already spending 50 bucks so we might as well get all that stuff all inclusive and then sit behind home plate i'm not exactly sure how that 
will work when the actual Marlins start playing at this Siri del Caribe thing. The tickets were like $45 after first pitch, and that's why my boss like pulled the trigger on them <coughs> and sent me in there. So might try that in the future. We'll see what happens. Um, honestly, seeing the, the, the baseball game from other seats after that is kind of lame. That sounded douchey, but like the experience, like if I, if anybody was ever like sitting courtside is very hard to do, but everybody who's ever sat courtside is like sitting courtside is like, once you do it, you can't go back. Like it's maybe not like that. And it's definitely not as expensive as courtside tickets are, but the cushy seats behind home plate, they rock incredibly hard. You can go up to the bullpen or sorry, bullpen, Jesus. You can go up to the dugout, talk to the players. I mean, I couldn't this time because I don't speak Spanish, but, um, and you're right behind home plate. I mean, the guys in the batting, in the on deck circle are like right in front of you. Just picture me on TV, you know. Um. So yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it kind of rocks. You don't pay for any food. Like they like it's basically a restaurant in there, like a buffet all you can eat type shit in there. Um, it's pretty fire. Anyway, that is post game not by the way not a flex that i'm rich because i've gone for free every single time i've been there so like nobody come at me anyway um baseball emoji that's it see ya